All right, well, happy third Sunday of Advent. Um, this uh, four-week season that uh, sits at the beginning of our Christian calendar that um, reaches its like cataclysmic culmination with Christmas, the celebration of the, the birth of Jesus. And I, I think there's something so beautiful about Advent that we don't begin with the, the cataclysmic celebration, but that we begin with a season of, of waiting, a season of, of preparing our hearts, preparing ourselves for this, this disruption into the very cosmos, right? That, that like we take some time to check in with ourselves, to prepare ourselves to receive this big, immense gift that is Christmas. Um, so one of the ways that we've been preparing ourselves uh, on Sundays is uh, journeying through our sermon series, Sparking a Prophetic Imagination for a New World. And throughout this uh, series, we've been journeying through um, the words of the prophets in uh, the Old Testament and asking, like, what, what sort of imagination is trying to be sparked from them? Um, what are they trying to do in us? What sort of, like, imagination for, for God's new creation are they trying to stir up within us? And then, um, uh, you know, wrestling through, like, what, what does this mean then as we, we anticipate the, 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 the coming, the arrival of Jesus? So that's where we're headed today. We're going to continue on following the words of the prophets uh, as we just heard. Um, but as we get ready to do that, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are grateful for this chance to uh, gather together um, to see uh, one another, whether that be here in person or on Zoom. God, thank you for the gift that is uh, this community. Now as we uh, turn to uh, the scriptures, we pause for a moment and we recognize that your spirit is here among us and we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that as we now wrestle with the scriptures that you would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I recognize that I talk about uh, the death of my parents often. Um, but I'll be honest, I don't know how else I could go about not talking about it. Um, because one of my uh, desires as like a pastor and as a preacher is like when I get up here to be like an authentic version of myself. And I don't know how to be authentic without talking about some sort of event that like authentically formed me, right? Because uh, when I think about my parents, I think about like uh, when I was in middle school and entering into like those early adolescent years, I... You know, you're looking for, like, a place of, like, meaning and belonging, and um, I, I had trouble finding that. <laughs> and yet, I found all of that in my, my dad. Um, despite, like, all of his quirks, all of, like, uh, his, his challenges with his mental and physical health, like, I was able to find a place of, like, meaning and, and belonging with my dad. And so, over the course of, like, my middle school years, like I poured myself into that, and then it felt like at the beginning of high school, like all of that was gone. Now, by the point that point in my life, like I had begun to find meaning and purpose in other areas of life, like I developed social skills and was able to make friends, you know, outside of my dad, uh, as you hope you do as you mature, right? But I still had like this energy that I had dedicated towards my dad, and so like I dedicated that plus all of the energy that I had already been dedicating towards my mom and trying to journey with her as she lost her husband and was now entering into this new season of life. And for two years, like we formed this really, really tight bond, and then again, what felt like that? It was gone. So these two like monumental individuals in my life 
it felt like in just, just a moment, we're all gone, and I found myself feeling like I was in like some sort of an exile experience. Uh, if you recall, a few weeks ago, we uh, looked at how Pastor Jay defines uh, the word exile, and he defined it as a place that you don't want to be. And I think most of us can like, relate to exile in that sort of space because most of us have gone through some sort of experience, be it metaphorically, that like, we, it was a place that we didn't want to be in, whether it be the loss of, of a loved one or some other form of pain, suffering, oppression, injustice in our life. There, there, there was some place that we didn't want to be, or perhaps it's like a literal place that we didn't want to be. Like Maybe you don't want to be um, in, in the, the house that you're in, the neighborhood you're in, the city that you're in, sitting here listening to me flap my gums, whatever it may be. That's okay, by the way, if that's where you're at this morning. But like we can all experience, we, we can all relate to this, this experience of exile, of being in a place that we don't want to be. And we know that to be in a place that we don't want to be shapes us in a profound way. I think it's because of this reality of the way that exile marks us and shapes us and forms us. I think it's why it becomes such a key player throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. Because we have parts of the Old Testament that are, that are warning about exile, this looming threat of exile. Like you're, you're warning a toddler not to touch the hot stove, right? Like don't touch it. Like if you touch it, it's going to burn you. If you touch it, it's going to burn you. And then they eventually get closer and closer. And now instead of getting burned, Israel like, gets captured and sent out into exile, right? Like there was this warning not to walk further and further from the hand of God, and yet they continued to do it. But then we see other parts of the prophets where they're talking about how to be faithful to the way of God, how to be faithful to being the people of God in exile. And then we see um, parts of the prophets talking about like what does life look like on the other side of exile? What does life post-exile look like as you come back to the land that God had given you? And our text for today, Isaiah 55, falls into this last category. It seems as though Isaiah 55 is like a particular message for the group of exiles who are now returning back to the land that God had given them as the people of God, coming back from this like profound moment of exile. So uh, this is how Isaiah 55 begins. And rather than like... uh, Uh, reading the entire opening verse, I want us just to acknowledge and recognize who this passage is addressed to. Because we see the the author here, uh, who's the mouthpiece of God, so we may say the prophet says, God says, it's all coming from God. So if that gets confusing, I apologize. But we see the, the author here writing, everyone who thirsts and you that have no money. Isn't that fascinating? Like, this should be a joyful moment, right? Like, he's, he's referencing um, those who are now returning from exile, coming back from this place that they didn't want to be. And yet, the way that he begins this passage is by saying, you who thirst and you who have no money. It seems as though, like, the author here is acknowledging the reality of exile, even in a post-exilic sort of state. It seems as though you may be returning from exile, and yet the marks of exile carry with you. Because exile most certainly was not a prosperous time for the people. Because they had been forcibly removed from the land that they had only only ever known and ever owned, and were sent out into a far-off distant land among far-off distant people with a different uh, language, different customs, different cultures, different ways of being human. Like, could you be prosperous in that sort of setting? (laughs) Probably not, right? Like most of us would be doing good just to make ends meet. And so now these are people who have spent like something like 70 years out in this foreign, far off distant land. 
now returning home, and of course this is like their reality, right? Having no money and being thirsty people. And again, we recognize that to, that to come to return from exile is to carry the marks of exile with you. I think all of us can recognize this with like this reality of COVID that we find ourselves in, right? We're certainly not like post-COVID, post-whatever last year was, post-quarantine, is that what we can call 2020, right? And obviously we're gathered together today, so like we're, we're post that quarantine stage, and yet like we carry the marks of that exile experience, right? You look around, most of us are wearing masks still, right? That's not 2019, or that's not 2019, right? We're still carrying the marks of that. We're probably not throwing big shindigs on our house like we would have in 2019, right? We went through this exile experience, and though we may be on the other side of that, that quarantine experience of it, like we still carry the marks of that. I think it's just fascinating and worth noting uh, that this is how the passage begins, by acknowledging the significance and the reality of the suffering that the people have just gone through. But if we fill in the blanks here, we see that it's not just an acknowledgement of the suffering that the people have gone through, but we recognize that really what it is is this big, bold invitation for the people who have just gone through this exile because we read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We see the, the, the author here like confronting the people and inviting the people into this to come and receive everything that they have been longing for. Everything that this, this ache within them has been crying out for. There's this invitation to come and receive. And for those who have been in exile, who were forcibly removed from their land, who found themselves among a foreign, distant people with different cultures, different language, different customs, different ways of being, who found themselves aching for food, for, for water, this would have been profound good news to come and receive your provision without price. For those that knew the ache of thirst and hunger within their bodies, this most certainly would have been good news. And I think for those of us uh, in this room who may not uh, know like the, the, that same sort of ache in our bodies, like I think we know this ache metaphorically. We know this ache within our spirits, within our souls, because all of us have experienced some level of pain and loss and suffering. And we can imagine what it, what it means to say, like, come and receive what will quench that thirst, what will quench that hunger, what will take care of that ache deep within you. This passage begins with this profound invitation that comes as good news to come and receive the thing that you've been longing for. Come receive provision without price. But then it takes a bit of a strange turn when we get to verse 2. What, what starts out as this profound invitation now turns to like a bit of confrontation. We read, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? <laughs> and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It seems that those, this is a question of like, why do you engage in like less than helpful practices, right? <laughs> like why are you spending on money on food that isn't bread? Like that's not going to actually nourish you. Why are you spending your hard-earned money on things that won't actually satisfy this ache within you? I think that's an easy question for us to pose to other people and be like, why do you engage in less than helpful practices? And yet I'm sure that the, most of us have gone shopping while we're hungry, right? Why do we do that to ourselves, right? We all know this experience, right? Maybe you're trying to squeeze it in before you get home to cook dinner. Maybe it's on your lunch break. For me, I went shopping at Giant Eagle on 30th Street at noon on Friday. Terrible mistake, right? I knew I was going to be hungry. I walk in, 
And like you see the produce, not that appealing, right? But then you look past it and you're like, all the baked goods. And I was like, oh, this is going to be dangerous. <laughs> so I stayed strong and I made it to like the second aisle. And I already began to like feel that pit in my stomach just start growing and crying out to me, right? Do good, make it all the way through. Get to the checkout line and uh, the person in front of me filled up the entire conveyor belt. And then the scanner stopped working. So I'm standing there and I look over. And did you know God's goodness shows up in like a giant cup of Reese's? As if Reese's weren't good enough, like a giant cup of Reese's, right? And I'm standing there not moving and I'm looking over and I'm feeling this pit within my stomach, right? Now, fortunately, I withheld and I did not give into it because you know what would have happened? I would have eaten that and by the time I got to my car, all of that sugar would have had an empty stomach and I would have felt absolutely miserable, right? <laughs> So why do we do this? Why do we have this impulse? I knew that that would be a terrible thing, but why it was everything within me crying out for that giant cup of Reese's? It has everything to do with our brains, I think. Now, see, our brains uh, have sort of two layers to them. We have an upstairs brain and a downstairs brain. Upstairs brain deals with like all of logic and rationality, math, common sense, all those good sorts of things, upper levels of thinking. Our downstairs brain, though, uh, not so much. Our downstairs brain is what has been responsible for keeping humankind alive for hundreds of thousands of years. And do you know what it is really perceptive at finding? Fear. Because how do you survive for hundreds of thousands of years? You're very aware of any sort of threat to your existence. So when we find ourselves at Giant Eagle uh, on 30th Street and we begin to get hungry, our downstairs brain is going, hello, <laughs> because our downstairs brain is now thinking, if I don't get food, I'm going to die. So my downstairs brain is now functioning in fear. And what happens when we slip into fear is fear leads to what we might call like a scarcity mindset. When we get into a scarcity mindset, we begin to think like, I don't know when I will ever get another chance. And so I begin to latch on to anything that I can get my hands onto. So scarcity mindset for me may look like the baked goods at Giant Eagle, something pretty inconsequential, right? But we may also find ourselves when we slip into fear and scarcity mindset, moving from one toxic relationship to another toxic relationship. Because that may have been a bad relationship, but now without that relationship in my life, I'm afraid that I may not find any other sort of connection in my life. And so the next toxic relationship that comes near me, I begin to latch on to that. Because this may be bad, well, but well, it's better than nothing, right? When we slip into fear, we begin to slip into a posture of scarcity, which says that I want to get my hands on whatever I can because I don't know when I'll get the no another chance at it. And so for those who had gone through this exile-like experience, they most certainly would have been marked by the fear that uh, came with that. And as they're marching back to Jerusalem from Babylon, you can imagine that they are afraid and that they are beginning to slip into this posture of scarcity along the way. So notice then after this, what feels like almost another sort of invitation, but it's an invitation to like reorient their thinking. Because here the author says, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. It's as if the author is saying, listen, I get it. Fear leads to scarcity. Fear causes you to trust the scarcity mindset, but it doesn't have to be that way. 
You can come and get all of the food that you want, all of the food that will actually nourish this ache deep within you. But of course, if you've ever experienced pain and suffering and loss and oppression and injustice in your life, you know that that's easier said than done, right? And so you can imagine those walking back from exile thinking like, that's way too good to be true. And so like the author now like turns and like ups the ante and says, incline your ear, come to me, listen so that you may live. This invitation to come and listen and to receive life. Life, this thing that like you probably felt like you were a walking corpse for the last 70 years. Like last week, Celia referenced like the the valley of dry bones, this existence that they would have been in, in in exile. But this invitation that you may live. But again, because this fear is so deep rooted within them, It pushes even deeper. And this life that they're being invited into is rooted in something deeper than all of the circumstances around them because the author now says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Some translations will put this as eternal covenant. This life that's being offered to them is rooted in this everlasting, this eternal covenant. This idea of the everlasting or eternal covenant goes all the way back to the beginning of their formation as a people with Abraham. And God calls Abraham out and makes with Abraham a covenant and says, you will become a great nation. I will bless you. And through you, you will be a great blessing to all people. You will be my people. and I will be your God journeying with you. We see reminders of this throughout the story of the Hebrew scriptures, throughout our Old Testament. And now we come to this other side of exile. When the people knew that they had led themselves into exile, And God continues to look at them and say, you will still be my people. I will still be your God. I will continue to look after you. But this life is rooted even deeper than this covenant. Because we read in the very next line that it's rooted in what's referred to here as my steadfast, sure love for David. Uh, Referencing like God's steadfast, sure love um, now, this, this phrase that gets translated steadfast, sure love, comes from the Hebrew word chesed. Say that with me on three, because that's fun. One, two, three, chesed. Thankfully, we have masks on, because you don't know what would be on the back of somebody's head in front of you. Uh, now, this word chesed gets translated several ways uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it can be translated as like loving kindness, steadfast love, uh, loyalty, faithfulness. It carries with it this big connotation of like um, uh, commitment and generosity. Now, what's interesting about chesed throughout the Old Testament is that this is, this is what's used to describe like God's core disposition towards the people of God. This is what's used to describe like the, the, the core nature of who God is, this chesed sort of love, this commitment, this loyalty, this generosity to the people of God. This time and time again is referred to as like this is who God is and this is what God is offering to us as the people of God. Now, why is this idea of chesed so important? Well, remember, what fear leads to. Fear leads to scarcity, or again, we might say fear trusts scarcity as like the ultimate reality. But what about like this chesed sort of love? What about a posture of love? What, what does that do within us? To help us flesh out that question, uh, I want to show us a, a picture here. Um, this is from an artist named Scott Erickson, or uh, Scott the Painter, uh, as he's affectionately known. I love this picture because like, you feel what's being said here, right? Um, at the top, it says, fear, trust, scarcity. And, and you see like these clenched fists, right? 
Because when you get afraid, what do you do? You clench up, you hold your fists tight. When you start thinking scarcity, you, 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 you tighten up, right? You want to hold on to things. You want to protect what you got, so you make fists, right? But at the bottom here, we see the opposite of that, right? We see love trusting not scarcity, but love trusting abundance. And when abundance is the reality of our life, like we don't have to clench our fists, but rather we can open them up and freely receive. Now for those who are coming back from exile, you can imagine like they are scared, they are timid, they have been living afraid, and they have every right to be walking back with clenched fists, right? You can imagine them holding on tightly to everything that they own, whether that be possessions or whether that be people. You can imagine them thinking like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. They have every reason to be walking with tight clenched fists, And I think for some of us, because of our life experiences, we too have found ourselves being shaped and formed into a posture of clenched fists. We've experienced some form of pain, some form of uh, loss, some form of suffering, some form of injustice, some form of oppression, and it has left us marked by it to the point that we are afraid and carrying around clenched fists. But I think the good news for us in Isaiah 55 is that the, the, the fear that comes from all of the, um, the pain and loss and suffering in our life is that this fear is not the ultimate reality. It may be a reality, but it's not the ultimate reality. But what is ultimate reality is the love of God expressed in this chesed sort of posture towards us. And if this love is the ultimate reality, this tells us that scarcity is not the ultimate reality. And if scarcity is not the ultimate reality, then I don't need to be walking around with clenched fists, holding tightly to everything, but rather I can open my hands and freely receive the life that God is offering to me and freely give the goodness that I have received to others. When I uh, was in my senior year of high school, um, I'm pretty confident that I was walking around with clenched fists. Two of the most significant relationships in my life had just been taken from me. And I'm so incredibly grateful as I look back for all of the people who essentially forced their way into my life, who reflected this chesed sort of posture of God to me and told me that they would not leave who began to chip away at that scarcity mindset that said that I can't trust relationships because I don't know how long they'll be. And because they continued to reflect chesed towards me, something like a loosening up of my fists began to happen. And I began to trust that fear and scarcity and clenched fists were not the ultimate reality, but that there was something bigger and better and more beautiful that we were being invited into. Which I think then brings us to the season of Advent. The season where we uh, acknowledge like the power of this chesed sort of posture, that it has the, the power to move us from fear to love, from scarcity to abundance, from clenched fists uh, to open hands. And in this season of Advent, we recognize that chesed is not some sort of abstract theological idea. We recognize that chesed is more than just words on a page, but that it comes to this cataclysmic moment of Christmas where chesed takes on flesh and dwelt among us. And in him was life and the light of the world. At Christmas, we recognize that this Hesed sort of love came to us as a gift. And I think the gift of Advent then for us is this chance to ask ourselves, like, how are we doing? Where are we? Like, are we walking around in a place of fear or love? Are we walking around with a posture of scarcity or of abundance? 
Are we walking around with clenched fists or open hands? Wherever we find ourselves, I think that's totally okay. (laughs) But I think it's important for us to know. And the reason why it's important for us to know is because Advent culminates to this gift of chesed taking on flesh and coming to us. I don't know about you, but it's really hard for me to receive a gift with clenched fists. And I think Advent is a chance for us to journey through that fear that may uh, have crept into our life, even if it be totally justifiable because of the, the pain, the loss, the suffering, the injustice in our lives. Advent is a chance for us to journey through that pain and to recognize that fear is not the ultimate reality, but that this chesed posture of God, this love of God is indeed the ultimate reality. And to move from clenched fists to something like open hands. So this Advent season, uh, my prayer for us is that uh, we, can, we can do some sort of authentic check-in with our lives, to ask ourselves how we're doing, where are we, to open ourselves up and bring others into that journey, to open ourselves up to the Spirit of God, and to recognize that like, in this season we have the power to move from fear to love, from scarcity to abundance, from clenched fists to open hands, so that when we reach this cataclysmic, climactic moment, of chesed love taking on flesh that we can receive him with open hands. Let's pray. Loving God, we're thankful for that chesed posture towards us. And God, we're grateful that um, on the other side of exile, We're not greeted with a wagging finger saying, how dare you? But that we're greeted with open hands that say, come, you who are thirsty, come and find water. You who have no money, come buy wine and milk, money or food without price. God, thank you for rooting all of this and this ultimate reality of your love, your disposition, your posture to us. And God, for those of us who find ourselves in this place of fear, this place of scarcity, this place of of closed fists, God, I pray that your spirit would open us up. Help us become aware of your great love for us, the love that sits at the core of the very cosmos that we find ourselves in. May it open us up and begin to see life as one of abundance. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.